You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's uh, scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. How many of you already this morning have engaged in some form of written communication? You sent a text message, or you left your roommate a note on the fridge, or uh, you responded to an email. Uh, This is something we do every day, multiple times a day. And in our written communication, there comes a time when we want to show emphasis. Uh, Maybe it's for the sake of urgency. For instance, please call me today. Or maybe it's for the sake of sincerity. For instance, I really like your new haircut. Or maybe it's for the sake of clarity. The meeting has been rescheduled for next Tuesday. When we want to show emphasis in English in our written communication, we often use underlining or we put things in italics or we use all caps. These are various ways of drawing attention to certain words and phrases. In the Hebrew language, emphasis comes through repetition. The prophet Isaiah has already used the technique of repetition multiple times thus far in the book that bears his name. But perhaps no instance of repetition in the entire Bible is as significant as the instance we come upon in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. A little bit of research will reveal to you that the Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or even sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. Only this attribute of God, His holiness is central enough and significant enough and important enough to be repeated three times. And so because of the significance of this doctrine, the significance of the idea of the holiness of God, we're going to sort of slow down in our study of Isaiah and we're going to just hone in this morning on this text and on this concept and idea. 
There is perhaps no more important doctrine. There's perhaps no more important thing we can know about God than the fact that He is holy. And so it's important that we slow down, that we take our time, or that we understand what does this mean. When we say that God is holy, what are we saying? And what do we mean by that? be quoting this morning from a number of authors who have written well on the concept of holiness. One of them is R.C. Sproul, who wrote a book called The Holiness of God, and that book is available on the resource table. And so if, if this idea, this topic, something of interest to you and you'd like to read more about, I would recommend that book. Here's what we're going to do this morning. Here's the outline of the sermon. Three things. What God's holiness is, what it does, and why it matters. What it is, what it does, and why it matters. That's what we want to look at together this morning. So before we go in that direction, uh, would you pause with me? And let me just pray for us again. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God, we acknowledge that for us to understand what that means... For us to be moved by what that means, we need your Holy Spirit to come, to open our eyes, and to connect us to this truth about you. And so Holy Spirit, as the one sent by Jesus as the helper, as the counselor, as the one who comes to to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and help us see reality. Would you come and would you reveal to us what it means that you are holy? We pray for your glory. Amen. So what is God's holiness? Well, surprisingly, the first uses of the word holy in the Bible don't refer to God at all. In fact, the first time we come across this word in the biblical record is in Genesis chapter 2 where we read, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The next instance in the biblical record is Exodus 3 verse 5, where Moses comes upon the burning bush and God speaks to Moses through this burning bush. And what God says to Moses is, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So, a holy day, holy ground. These ideas are actually very helpful to us in refining and clarifying our understanding of what holiness is. Because for most of us, when we hear the word holy, we tend to connect it to ethics. We tend to immediately think that holiness means something like moral purity or ethical perfection. It has to do with the goodness of God, morally speaking. And that idea is contained within the idea of holiness, but it's actually a secondary meaning of the word holy. We see this in the fact that days and plots of land are not moral agents, right? They don't have the capacity to be obedient or disobedient. 
morally pure or morally impure. Something deeper and fuller and more significant is contained within the idea of holiness. So so here's some help for us. In English, a synonym for the word holy is the word sacred. Now we get some better sense of what holiness means biblically by thinking of what it means for something to be sacred. Sacred really means set apart. The Lord's day is a sacred day. It's set apart from the rest of the week for rest and for worship. The ground on which Moses is standing is sacred ground. It's set apart because the presence of God is there. It's different. It's unique. Something that, has been, something that is called holy has been set apart from common use. And, and we might think of it as unique or different or special or uncommon. I brought one of the holy objects from our house along today. This is one of the holy items in the Thune household, the red plate. Perhaps some of you have a plate like this. This plate is set apart from common use. It's only used on special occasions. It's used when we want to mark a certain occasion. And in fact, the way this works is that on the back, there are lists. We keep record of what we use this plate for for the occasion for which this plate was taken out of the cupboard and put on the table and eaten off of. And so on here we have things like Lee's first dinner at home as a mom after she gave birth to Parker in 1999. Or Sophie's birthday. Or Father's Day. These are the kinds of days that we use the red plate. We want to set it apart. We want to set this day or this moment or this occasion apart as special and unique. The red plate is a holy plate, so to speak. And likewise, for God to be holy means that he is set apart. He's in a different category. And that different category is not primarily an ethical category, though it includes that. It's primarily an ontological category. It's a category of being. He's a different kind of being than we are. Here's how R.C. Sproul defines the holiness of God. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other. And it's that idea of otherness that I want in your mind this morning as we think about the holiness of God. That's really what the Bible means when it says God is holy, is that He is other. He's not like us. We don't approach God's holiness, we don't get a sense of God's holiness by thinking about what a human being would be like if they were really, really good or really, really unique. Remember what Tozer said, David read this quote at the beginning of our worship. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. 
My friends, Isaiah is telling us this morning, God is holy. He is other. He is transcendent. He is beyond and above and exalted. He is not like us. Otherness, that's what holiness is. But let's ask, let's look at now what it does. What God's holiness does. Three things. First of all, God's holiness beckons us. It it calls to us. It, It draws us in. There's something in us that is profoundly attracted and drawn to the holy. This is the basic premise behind every scary movie you've ever seen and every scary story that you've ever heard. Think about a good scary movie or a good ghost story that you told to your kids or that your parents told to you around the campfire. What is it that we feel when we have those kinds of experiences? We feel both an awe and a dread and a fear, but also something that sort of makes us want more, right? Because in those kinds of stories, there is something holy, something other. Angels or demons or the supernatural, even aliens, right? Something other, something that's not quite like us. There's something about us that's attracted and that's mystified and that's pulled in by the concept and the idea of holiness. And so because we're made that way, because we're wired that way, God's holiness beckons us. There's something about God's holiness that makes us long to know Him and to know what that is and to be connected to that divine otherness. One of the most important thinkers about holiness was a German philosopher named Rudolf Otto. He lived around the turn of the 20th century. And he wrote a really important philosophical work called The Idea of the Holy. And what Otto was reacting against was the the great move at that time in the history of philosophy toward rationalism, toward if it can't be tasted, touched, smelled, quantified, measured in some way, then it's not real. And Otto said the problem with that is that in every culture and in every human being, there's this sort of longing for the divine and there's this experience that people have of holiness and it's supra-rational. It's not unrational, it's beyond rationality. Otto said holiness can't be taught, it can only be evoked. It's something existential. Here's how he described The feeling of encountering the holy. The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may burst in sudden eruption up from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions. Or it may become the hushed, trembling and speechless humility of the creature in the presence of that which is a mystery inexpressible and above all creatures. You've felt this, haven't you? 
you've experienced this in one or perhaps all three of these manifestations. Touching up against the divine, the holy, in a way that makes you overwhelmed with emotion or perhaps hushed with silent humility. Rudolf Otto tried to describe the experience of the holy philosophically. He tried to say when people experience this, what is it that they're experiencing? And he he essentially boiled it down to three components. Mystery, majesty, and vitality. My friends, isn't that exactly what we see in Isaiah 6? Isaiah encounters the mystery of God. And he's straining at the limits of human language to try to describe for us this mysterious vision he has of God surrounded by angels and his robe filling the temple and him just being overwhelmed by this mysterious reality that is God. There's a majesty to it. He describes its overpoweringness. He's immediately brought to his knees and to his face before the power and the majesty of God. And then there's a vitality to it. God speaks to him. There's personal interaction. This is not just some transcendent force. This is a personal being. God's holiness beckons us. There's something in us that longs to experience mystery and majesty and vitality. To know that, to be connected to that, to have that experience. The holiness of God beckons us and draws us and speaks to something deep within us. Second, not only does God's holiness beckon us, but the holiness of God humbles us. How many of you have had that experience where you thought you were really awesome at something until you met somebody that was? Has this happened to you? This happens to all of us at some point in our lives, doesn't it? I think I'm good at something, and then I meet somebody who really is, and all of a sudden I reevaluate my level of competence or skill in that area. I remember as a young preacher thinking, you know what, I'm pretty decent at this communication thing. Kind of got this down. Until I went to hear Haddon Robinson, who wrote the book, biblical preaching that is the standard textbook used in almost every seminary in America. And by the time he was done with four sentences, I thought, woe is me, for I am undone. (laughs) I mean, I I will never be as good as this guy, right? he's, He's in another category when it comes to preaching and communication. Likewise, when we apprehend when we encounter when we begin to see and know the holiness of God we gain a more proper and more humble view of ourselves right when we encounter the infinite we begin to see how finite we are when we encounter the righteous we begin to see how unrighteous we are when we encounter the creator we begin to see how limited we are as creatures God's holiness humbles us Rudolf Otto called this feeling that we have that humbles us, he called it creature consciousness, which I think is a good phrase. What he says is when you're in the presence of the absolute, of the divine, of the creator, you're really, really aware that you're a creature. 
Again, it's exactly the experience Isaiah has. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. There's something about me and my created reality that is not worthy to be in the presence of this one who has created me. Otto said, it is the emotion of a creature overwhelmed by its own nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme above all creatures. Have you been overwhelmed by your own nothingness? Have you encountered God in a way that reminds you of how small, how insignificant, how finite, how fragile you are? The holiness of God humbles us. It's only in seeing Him rightly that we see ourselves right. So God's holiness beckons us. God's holiness humbles us. Finally, God's holiness softens us. One of the basic contrasts in the Bible is the contrast between a hard heart and a soft heart. So for instance, we read in Proverbs 28, 14, Blessed, happy, is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So there's a contrast between the one who fears the Lord, notice that, and the one who hardens his heart. The holiness of God awakens fear, which is good and softens us. The contrast is the person who hardens his or her heart. You see, sin hardens us. Selfishness hardens us. Worldliness hardens us hardens us, but the fear of God softens us. Because as we apprehend the holiness of God, we begin to see more clearly the gravity, the significance, the weightiness of our sin. Listen to R.C. Sproul again. The slightest sin is an insult to God's holiness. When we sin as the image bearers of God, We are saying to the whole creation, this is how God is. This is how your Creator behaves. Look at us and you will see the character of the Almighty. We like to think the opposite is true, don't we? We like to think we can say to people, hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Don't look at us. Look at God. Read the Bible. Find out what God is like for yourself. Don't judge God based on us. But guess what? That doesn't work. Why? Because we're image bearers of God. And what the people of God do says something about God. Your sin says something about God. So when you lust, you say to the world, God is a lustful God. When you lie, you declare to the entire creation, God is a lying God who doesn't keep his word. When you harbor bitterness, you preach to all who know you, God is a bitter and resentful God. When you begin to see that your sin and my sin compromises the holiness of God, makes God seem to be something less than he is, when you begin to see that and be convicted by that, You stop rationalizing your sin and justifying your sin and excusing your sin and you start repenting of your sin. 
and turning from your sin and seeking to put your sin to death. Why? Because you want to be holy as God is holy. You want to be an accurate reflection of His holiness. You want to mirror or image His being and character as accurately as you can because of what He is actually like. The holiness of God softens us. When we really come in contact with, we really understand what it means that God is holy. We have a much lower tolerance for our unholiness. We're much softer to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to change us, to call us to confession and repentance and obedience and growth and transformation. God's holiness beckons us, it humbles us, and it softens us. So we've talked about what God's holiness is, His otherness. We've talked about what it does. Let's close by considering then why it matters. It matters for our worship, for our witness, and for our wellness. So let me talk through each of those. First of all, God's holiness matters for our worship. What I mean here is both for our gathered worship on Sundays and for what it means to live a life of worship, a life that is, like the name of our church, Coram Deo, lived before the face of God, lived for the worship of God and the glory of God. God's holiness matters greatly for our worship because if we do not see God as holy, we will not worship God rightly. Listen to A.W. Tozer. Unless the weight of the burden of sin is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to a man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. So catch the connections that Tozer is making here. He's saying, look, for the gospel to mean something to you, you have to feel the weight of the burden of sin. And for you to feel the weight of the burden of sin, you have to see God high and lifted up. Until you see who God is and what God is like and what God expects, you don't feel any conviction of sin. And so... His conclusion is low views of God destroy the gospel. Why? Because if I don't see God as high and lifted up, then I don't see my sin as that big a deal, and I don't feel burdened by my sin, and I need to be redeemed and forgiven and set free from it. Low views of God destroy the gospel. If you do not see God as holy, you will not see Christ as glorious. It's just that simple. Cormdale, we want to be a people who treasure the Lord Jesus who worship with great affection the Lord Jesus, whose lives are changed and transformed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because of the work of the Lord Jesus. And listen to me, unless we see God as holy, none of that comes to bear. Unless we see God as holy, we will not see Jesus as great and glorious, and our worship will be shallow and weak 
and ineffectual, and it will not move us to great joy, to great transformation, to great obedience. The holiness of God matters for our worship. Let's look again at the cross chart that Justin showed you last week. And I just want to show you, this is, how the, this is exactly the point that Tozer's making in this quote, right? Unless the weight of the burden of sin is felt, that's the bottom line. The gospel can mean nothing to a man. The person and work of Jesus on the cross means nothing. And until he sees the vision of God high and lifted up, that's the top line. There'll be no woe and no burden. Uh, Unless I'm convinced there's a gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness that needs to be bridged by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, I won't see a need for the gospel. And so this is what our worship ought to look like. This is what we want as a people is to be continually and consistently growing in our love for Jesus and in our um, conviction of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Because we're always growing in our understanding of God's holiness and because as a result of that, we're always seeing more clearly our own sin and our own need for forgiveness and redemption and change. So that the work that Jesus did, it's not that the work that Jesus did increases. It's that our understanding of it, our existential sense of it grows. We're more and more thankful for what Jesus has accomplished. God's holiness matters for our worship. We won't be a worshipful people unless we recognize the holiness of God. Secondly, God's holiness matters for our witness. How many of you like telling people about Jesus? This is a good thing. It's why we're here. We love talking to people about Jesus. Not many of you raised your hands. We'll talk about that. That'll be another sermon later. But for now, I'm going to assume that there's something in you, at least, that enjoys the idea of telling people about Jesus, all right? Here's the problem. If they don't understand the holiness of God, then they will not see their need for Jesus. So what does our evangelism look like? Hey, Jesus is great. You should love him. You should trust him. You should worship him. Why? Because Jesus is great. You should love him. You should trust him. You should worship him. We know how to talk about Jesus. The problem is we're offering people a solution to a problem they don't know they have. You're giving them a drug they don't know they need because they're not convinced that there's any disease they need to be cured from. So the starting point for our witness is not Jesus. Listen to me. The starting point for our witness is not Jesus. The starting point for our witness is the holiness of God. That's what gets us to Jesus. You only offer the solution after people are convinced there's a problem. So Francis Schaeffer, the great, sorry, I yelled and made your kid cry. I'm sorry about that. I do that sometimes. I'll try to bring it down a little bit. All right. So Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist and Christian evangelist, was asked once, what would you do if you met a man on a train and you had an hour to preach the gospel to him? Here's what Schaeffer said. I would spend the first 50 minutes talking about God and sin, and the last 10 minutes sharing the gospel. Why? Because Schaefer realized the gospel doesn't do any good unless they're convinced of who God is and the reality of their sin. I have a friend who, um, by God's grace, I've had the privilege of sharing the gospel with over the course of the last three and a half years. 
And it's been really a fun sort of dialogue and process. And um, she finally came to church last year one time, back in April. Of course, when I was preaching on some topic that was completely the wrong topic for her, that's how it always goes, right? As you bring somebody to church, it's like, oh yeah, this is, of all the messages you could have come for, this is the one that's going to make you the most angry. So that's what happened. And she came to church, and, and I saw her uh, in the coffee shop a couple days later, and I said, hey, so thanks, you came to church, I appreciate that, curious on your feedback, and she told me a little bit about sort of how it felt here, worshiping among us. And I said, hey, we've never really talked about your, your view of Jesus. So you were with us, and you probably got the fact that we believe Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead, and that he atoned for sin, and that he's coming again. I mean, you probably got what we think about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? What's your understanding of Jesus right now? And she said, look, I'm convinced he lived. I think he really was a good teacher and, and preacher. I'm not convinced he rose from the dead. Not convinced he died to atone for sin. Not convinced of any of the supernatural stuff. I said, all right. Left it at that. And the question I asked her was, do you see yourself, let's move away from Jesus for a minute. Do you feel like in any way you're accountable to God for how you live? She said, well, no, of course not. God is a concept. God's a, a, a concept that people have that you know, helps them through life sometimes, but I'm not accountable in any way to God. There's not a real God who absolutely holds us to a moral standard, no. So we completed that conversation and continued our friendship and interactions over the course of the rest of the year. About January of this year, she picked up a book that was more about God and his character. She texted my wife and said, Bob asked me one time last year if I felt like I was accountable to God. And my answer at that time was no. The answer as of today is absolutely. And less than a month later, she trusted in Christ. You see why? Because once... I'm convinced that I'm accountable to God for how I live. All my questions change. The, the, the clarity with which I see the importance of who Jesus is and what he did changes because I understand who God is rightly. But before that, I can easily live as though Jesus is just a good moral teacher and it's, Christians are nice people, but I don't need Jesus. He didn't do anything for me that I need to access or gain for myself in some way. God's holiness matters for our worship, it matters for our witness, and finally, it matters for our wellness. Here's an interesting thing about the concept of holiness. The English word holy comes to us from the Anglo-Saxon word how, which means well or whole. So there's a connection between holiness and wholeness. Think about your life this way. Your life is like a solar system. All the things in your life are orbiting around something. There's some sun at the center of your universe that keeps everything in orbit. And the natural tendency of the human heart is to, is to put something at the center like career or a relationship or my kids or what I want out of life right? Put something at the center that doesn't have the gravitational pull to sustain that solar system. And what happens when you do that? 
the planets begin flying off, right? Your life begins to unravel. Why? Because you're trying to allow it to orbit around something that doesn't have the density and the mass and the weightiness to keep it orbiting. This is why God's holiness is essential to our wellness because only the character of God, if God is actually other, if God is actually infinite, if God is actually the creator, he's the only one with the gravitational pull, with the weightiness, with the glory to sustain everything in your life orbiting around him. He can actually keep it all together and pull it all in and make it function the way it's supposed to. But you know what our problem is? We put other things at the center and life begins to spin out of control and we wonder, why are we so sideways? The holiness of God is crucial to our wellness. I don't have to tell you, right, that though we are the most affluent and comfortable society that has ever lived, we are also the most unhappy society that has ever lived, right? More of us are depressed and demoralized and frustrated and unhappy than ever in the history of the world, and yet we have more. And so you'd think, well, we have secured for ourselves the kind of life that, that we can sustain, that everything can orbit around. I have the money I need. I have the comfort I need. I, I've surrounded myself with the relationships I need. Everything should work. Nope. It's all orbiting around something that's not weighty enough to sustain it. Only God, in all of his holiness, and all of his glory, and all of his beauty, can sustain the orbit of your life in a way that brings wholeness and wellness and healthiness to your being and to your relationships and to all that you give yourself to in life. So Isaiah, the prophet, 25 times in this book refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. Justin told you last week that in chapter 6, these are the first words we hear from Isaiah. This is the first we see of Isaiah in the book. And what we see is that this experience with God marks him in a way that changes the language he uses for God. The phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is used 25 times in the book of Isaiah, only seven times in the rest of the Bible. Isaiah, for the rest of his life, was a man, a leader, a prophet, marked by his encounter with the Holy. And my longing for us, Quorum Deo, is that we would be a people marked by an encounter with the Holy. That we would not be the same because we come face to face with the holiness of God. With what it is, with what it does, and with why it matters. Let's pray. So God, that's really our prayer that you would help us see and know your holiness. Forgive us even for the false ways that we reason through this, that we think, well, if I saw you in a vision like Isaiah did, it would be much easier to see and believe your holiness. When in reality, we have 
seen through the witness of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. And we have seen in His crucifixion the great significance of your holiness. That you are other and that you will not tolerate sin. And so help us not make a division and a distinction between Isaiah's experience and ours. Rather, help us see that this morning in the words and pages and truth of Scripture, you're bringing us face to face with yourself. And even more significantly, you've given your Holy Spirit who exists to help us comprehend and apprehend and understand your holiness. So this morning, for those here who are not converted, would you convert them as they see who you are and what you expect? For those who are converted, would you renew in us a concern for your holiness, that we would pray with the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Let your, yourself and your name be seen as holy, as high, as lifted up. To have the worth in our lives that you deserve. That's our prayer this morning. Thank you that because you sent Jesus, we can sustain knowing your holiness because you've brought us near to yourself through the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.